Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm particularly happy about this opportunity to talk with my friend and someone I've learned from already, Jack Glaser, professor at UC Berkeley. Yeah, today we're very, very happy, as you just said, to welcome a wonderful social psychologist and an absolutely world-class expert on stereotyping, bias, and discrimination. Jack is a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. He studies intergroup biases and the unconscious operation of stereotypes and prejudice, particularly focusing on the implications of subtle forms of bias for law enforcement. In particular, he's interested in racial profiling, especially as it relates to the psychology of stereotyping and has conducted research on extreme manifestations of bias and prejudice, including hate crimes. Jack is also the author of Suspect Race, Causes and Consequences of Racial Profiling, and is on the board of the Center for Policing Equity. So Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, um, considering the state of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad. Yeah, one of the lines that uh, we had a guest on who said that they were COVID okay, and I've started to kind of incorporate that into my vocabulary a little bit. Yeah, that's the new... That's a new qualifier. Yeah, that's the new baseline for sure. So today we're going to be focusing on the broad topic area of things that influence our behavior that we aren't really aware of. Uh, To put it simply, various forms of bias. What drew you into the study of this generally and of policing in particular? I'm going to give a a caveat. Great. Just to say that when I look back on my career and what led up to it, I'm at risk of one form of bias, which is imposing a level of coherence on what happened. <laughs> and so coherence bias. And and so uh, so I I want to acknowledge that I'm going to tell a story and that there's a lot more randomness and a lot of good luck, just dumb luck in the story uh, that explains this, but but I will impose some coherence on it. So so let me back up and just say that I I pursued graduate study in social psychology, and I, and I think this is correct, that I pursued it because I really wanted to understand prejudice and how it causes discrimination. And the reason that was important to me was that I grew up in that household with a mother who was a Holocaust survivor. So um, I never knew my grandparents uh, because they were killed for being Jewish. And my father, um, who was a rabbi, was really in his heart a civil rights leader. And he was constantly pursuing social justice. And so uh, between those two influences, I really wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And I got dissuaded from that doing pre-law in college. And then after some years of, of my own nonprofit work experience, I stumbled on social psychology. And I found social psychology to be especially compelling with respect to understanding prejudice and how it gives rise to discrimination. The theories were very appealing to me and the research methodology is very robust. And so I got excited about that and I started applying to programs and got lucky and got into Yale University. And while I was casting about there looking for people to work with, I then had the extremely dumb luck, good fortune of finding Mazarin Banaji. Um, who was ended up being my dissertation advisor. And she is mm-hmm. one of the leading lights 
in the in the theory and research behind implicit bias. So she at that time, this is the early 1990s, and she working with her mentor Anthony Greenwald was uh, was blazing trails in in how we understand implicit bias and how we can measure it. And they had the big breakthrough developing the implicit association test. And we would sit around her lab table talking about how to analyze those data and what they mean and what they don't mean and the like. And so this was really right at the birth of all of that. And I, I had the just mm-hmm. good fortune to be there. And then I went on on my own path, looking at particular aspects of implicit bias. And I should probably pause and say what I think implicit bias is, and we can come back to it in greater depth. But yeah, that would be great. Sure. So Im- implicit bias, since we're going to talk about it a lot, is uh, our biases, so stereotypes and prejudices that reside outside of our conscious awareness and can be automatically activated in spite of our best intentions and therefore can skew our perceptions of others and our behaviors toward others. And this is all built on decades of very meticulous, careful cognitive psychological research on how memory works. And what cognitive psychologists identified through thousands of careful studies was that our memories are associative, that when we think of one thing, uh, all of the things that are associated with it in our memory get activated. And that that happens spontaneously and automatically. Uh, and that we most most of our information processing from perception to encoding to storage to retrieval of information happens outside of conscious awareness and control. If it didn't, uh, we would be paralyzed by all of the information flooding into our five senses at all. So just like learning to drive a car, you know, it might be very complex and controlled and and frustrating at first. As you rehearse it, it becomes automatized to the point where you don't have to think about which pedal to press in order to stop or go or what that sign means or what that light means. Uh, That all becomes automatized and frees up your cognitive resources for higher order kinds of thoughts. So we were learning all of that uh, right there in the early 90s at, um, at Yale. And, um, and that launched me into thinking about the very nature of these stereotypes and these prejudices and how they reside in our, in our memories and how they influence us. And then the turn that I took was as I was heading toward a faculty position in a school of public policy, I happened to read an article on racial profiling. And this is an article by Randall Kennedy, who's a very prominent black constitutional scholar at Harvard Law School. And he was writing about racial profiling and he was disapproving, but he was mostly appropriately arguing on the basis of the Constitution, that it violates the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment protections on due process and equal protection under the law. And he seemed intentionally or not to be sort of conceding that racial profiling, that police dedicating more attention to minorities with the intention of deterring or cap- crime or capturing criminals, he seemed to be conceding that that was rational and efficient. And my training as a social psychologist indicated there were lots of reasons why these stereotypes, these beliefs we have about who's, who's got what trait, who's, who's inclined to behave in one way or another, that these stereotypes can be formed in a completely illusory fashion. But also, even if there's a kernel of truth to them, they tend to cause us to make inferential errors. They tend to cause us to make mm-hmm. a judgment mm-hmm. of an individual based on some prevalence within their group 
the, the prevalence is so low that the judgment of the individual is not rational, it's not helpful. I started thinking about that. And then I started thinking, Ben, and if we have a stereotype that blacks are, are typically or more likely to be engaged in crime, what's that based on? Well, it's going to be based on criminal justice data, which is essentially who gets arrested. And if police officers are operating under the assumption that, that blacks are more likely to commit crime, they're going to stop and search more blacks and they're going to arrest more of them. So their behavior is going to shape the outcome, which is going to shape the stereotype, which is going to in turn shape their behavior again. It's this vicious cycle. And, you know, I'm not arguing that there's there aren't differences across various demographic groups in terms of criminal offending and the like. But the larger effect is the self-fulfilling nature of stereotype based behavior. And because police have so much power, they're in this position of actually being able to change and shape the life outcomes of the people that they have the stereotypes toward. The rest of us can innocuously make make bad calls about who we should interact with and the like. Uh, although as a university professor, I also have you know power when I'm on a search committee or, or admissions committee or something like that. So we're, none of us are immune for responsibility. And, and that, that set me down the path of, you know, trying to apply the psychological science of stereotyping and discrimination to this particular thing that has such a big impact on so many people's lives. Well, Jack, that was a phenomenal summary of a incredibly complicated and complex body of knowledge that you just gave in kind of your, uh, your personal bio. So thanks for doing that. I think you answered at least two or three of the different questions that I had before we started this interview just right there. I want to really delve into what you're saying there in detail because it's such important work and people are so have become so so aware of it if they weren't already. I, I mean, many people, of course, are extremely aware of the challenges that policing has with racial profiling, the ways in which police violence, violence disproportionately affect people of color, that whole stew. Um, and of course, that got thrown into particularly harsh relief over the last year. Uh, before we go into that territory in particular, you've already mentioned a couple of different kinds of bias that exist. You were talking about coherence bias a second ago in terms of imposing a, a nice narrative over your personal story. We've we mentioned implicit bias. Then you were talking about uh, racial profiling and stereotyping and things like that. I think that most of the people listening are probably familiar that with the idea that people have biases, but just to kind of ground the conversation, uh, what are some of those major forms of bias? Like, How does it appear in people's lives? Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, I, I hadn't even thought about the coherence bias until until I said it. <laughs> but I think it's super true. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a nice metaphor for these other kinds of biases, because it, what it does is that that coherence that we impose on our own narratives enables us to cut through all that noise. If I were to go back and tell you the whole story, it would take too long for me to tell you the story. And I couldn't remember all the details, but there were many forces operating on me as I, as I developed. And I, all I can really do is look back and, and see that coherent thread for better or worse. So along those lines, that's essentially what biases, what function they serve for us on a regular basis. They enable us to manage and navigate a complex social environment um, with shortcuts. And, um, and so, you know, the way I think about how our, how our biases operate, and I'm talking about here primarily intergroup biases. So there, there are many kinds of judgment and decision-making biases, um, like hindsight bias and like the anchoring effect and base rate fallacies. And there are all kinds of, and, and you should read Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow for, for a good coverage of that. 
but I'm talking about specifically intergroup biases. So the biases that we have toward mem- toward people as a function of the groups that they belong to. And that could be people who belong to other groups, but we also have biases toward our own groups. They tend to be preferential biases, but we, we do. And then people who belong to low status or stigmatized groups often stigmatize their own, their own group and even stigmatize themselves. There's a whole concept that Claude Steele developed called stereotype threat that says that, you know, people who think they're, they belong to a group that, that doesn't do well in a particular domain when made to think about that will actually do worse. So the essential concepts that I think about are first, just the, the concept of categorization. And this is what cognitive psychologists also developed, a notion that humans and other organisms have to be able to categorize things that they encounter. Uh, you have to be able to differentiate between a rock and an apple. You have to be able to differentiate um, between a, you know, a, a tiger and a dog. And so uh, I, I'm being bizarrely evolutionary in all of this, but you, you get the point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Similarly, uh, evolutionarily, and, and it's a dicey prospect to, to weigh too much on evolutionary psychology because for the most part, it's not falsifiable because the fossil record is not deep enough for, in human history to falsify these hypotheses. But the general idea is that you know we have evolved to, to survive. And one function of evolution was to enable us to differentiate ourselves from people we didn't share genes with. And so we would show a preference for our own genes uh, for the people who we share genetic makeup with and give them better resources. And we might even, you know, we might even act out violently against those who we think threaten our, our genetics. And so that's the general idea that we've come to categorize ourselves as belonging to what psych- social psychologists call in-groups, groups that we are a part of, and others as belonging to out-groups, groups that we do not belong to. And so that has multiple implications. Oh, and by the way, we start doing that at a very, very early age. And I, I have a story I like to tell about mm-hmm. my son, Danny, uh, when he was about three years old, my wife, Alyssa, Dan- uh, Alyssa and Danny were, were at a toy store and Danny was playing with another little boy. And the backdrop to this is that we naively or, or not were trying not to introduce racial categories into Danny's thinking. I, I knew better. I knew that it wasn't really possible, but we, we, we just didn't talk about people in terms of their racial or ethnic categories. Um, the little boy he was playing with was a, an Asian American little boy, and we had never described people that way. But Danny had a caregiver at his, at his daycare uh, named Betty, who was Chinese American and a lovely person, and he was very fond of her. And at the end of the time, when Melissa said it was time to go, Danny patted the little boy on the hand and said, Betty. And so, you know, essentially what happened was Danny recognized the category Asian, um, which was age appropriate. He didn't have a label for it because we never said people who look like that are called Asian. And, and he, he gave it a name, Betty. And so, you know, that's, that's very fundamental to human information processing and social information processing. And so that's something we, we know now, you know, people do. And then the implications of that are, are multiple. One is that having done that, having categorized oneself as belonging to an in-group and someone else as belonging to an out-group, we spontaneously start to favor the people who we think are in our in-group. And that's also you know, a whole decades of research on social identity and, uh, and something called the minimal group paradigm, uh, where 
French psychologist Henri Tajfel showed that people, even though they knew that they had been very arbitrarily assigned to belong to a group, would start conferring on average, you know, these are all just tendencies, uh, they would start conferring more more resources onto people that they thought were in their own group, even though they'd never seen them or met them uh, or really felt like they had any shared fate. Just the mere categorization into a group causes people to favor their in-group under the most abstract circumstances. But we also see that in the real world, that obviously people show favoritism for their family members and their and people in their political party or people in their racial category. So that's a very real phenomenon, but it's also very fundamental. It's this, cat, this fundamental process of categorization. In addition to that general favoritism or disfavoring, uh, we also attach these stereotypes to those categories. So we have the substance, the content of our beliefs about what people from that group are like and what people from my group are like. We also, layered on top of that, have a tendency to overestimate the homogeneity of other groups. We tend to think those people are more alike with each other than people in my group, and we, and we overestimate the heterogeneity of our own groups. And that compounds the stereotype effect, because then if we see someone from the other group, we have a stronger assumption that they're like the other people from that group that we've, we've observed doing this or that. And then we give people from our group a little more credit. Well, he did that, but I think it was because the situation sort of dictated that he should do that. I, I wouldn't have done that, but, but I understand why he did it. So there are all of these complex layers of bias, just mere favoritism, and then these stereotypes, which tend to be more positive toward our in-groups than toward out-groups. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, the fact that even people from stigmatized groups will disfavor themselves in their own group. So th those are sort of the main components of all this. And then, and we can talk more, I'm sure you're going to want to talk more about this, layer on top of all of that, that most of this happens outside of conscious awareness and control. Yeah. And because sure. of that, it's very difficult to, to control. Jack, we're going to end up exploring, we hope, what people can do to bring what is outside of awareness into awareness and then work with it skillfully at the personal level. But before we do that, uh, I want to, of course, acknowledge something you know deeply well, which is that these psychological processes that you're describing that we could say are located in some sense, within individuals uh, or informally, you know, between different individuals, also are embedded in and are exploited by large-scale systemic forces that use them to maintain different systems of social hierarchy and oppression, for example, uh, such as has been described, as you know, by Isabel, I believe, Wilkerson in her book, Cast, which I'm halfway through right now. And so I wondered if you could relate the psychological processes to broad economic, societal, political, cultural processes, just to put them in context. And then we'll come back out of that more public policy scale into what individuals can do themselves. Yeah, great. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I've been very mindful of in recent years. As an expert on implicit bias, I, my research and my writing tends to focus on these individual level biases, uh, and they are important. They're important in policing. Um, I think they're especially important in police use of force, and that's something I'm studying more and more these days. Uh, so they're important, but, but what I'm very mindful of is where they sit relative to the, the more structural inequities. 
and 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 not not just the inequities, but the you know these stereotypes are are part of our of our environment and our media environment in in particular. And most most people, most white people, don't have much at all contact with members of minority groups by definition. You know, probabilistically, that's going to be the case. And much of our exposure to them is through media representations. Um, in fact, I'm I'm really happy to announce that the, the chief of police in San Francisco, Bill Scott, recently changed his policy after reading my book. <laughs> <laughs> changed the policy, uh, of, and they're no longer releasing mugshots because he, based on the psychological science, knows that those promote racial stereotypes. And by the way, those people have the presumption of innocence anyway. But you know, in the context of policing, for example, where I study, you have to recognize that there are so many other things operating and that there are these historical inequities. And and again, in the case of black Americans, you know, that's a whole population that that was brought to this country against their will and then subjugated brutally for centuries. And then after ostensible emancipation was never, was still subjugated and treated brutally. And, and one could argue are still treated quite brutally by the police and, and, suffers from all kinds of discriminatory inequities. Uh, and so these, these larger contexts have to be taken into account. But what I'll also say is that it's, a, it's another feedback loop. Uh, to the extent that we have these inequalities, people will seek reasons to explain the inequalities. And some of those reasons will be those very stereotypes or those negative attitudes to try to rationalize why this group has so much less and gets, it seems to end up in prison so much more often. Uh, and then again, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the stereotypes rationalize the inequities and then the behavior based on the stereotypes causes more inequities, which in turn require more rationalization. And it's a very difficult cycle to break. And it's it's a generational process and and it's an affirmative process. It's not something that's just going to snowball by itself. It, it requires uh, a lot of effort against inertia, the inertia of, of group-based biases. But structurally, that's where most of the action needs to happen. There need to be policy changes that can create greater opportunities for, for equity. And you know, one, one of the things that gets in our way is, is what people who study something called social dominance theory call the myth of meritocracy. And that's something that people really cling on to, the idea that everybody in America has a chance has an equal chance of succeeding somehow, or at least everybody has a good chance of succeeding. And that's just completely false. But, but that myth enables people to rationalize and live with the inequities that they see. And, and then, you know, again, it's mutually reinforcing the inequities, rationalized stereotypes, and the stereotypes build the inequities. If I can make just a couple of comments there, just one with regard to the myth of meritocracy. Obviously, there are elements of effort just in your own story. On the other hand, when I think about my own life, um, I think about all the subtle advantages uh, I got just by virtue of being born into a white family that, for example, had access to buying homes as my parents came out of World War II as veterans that black Americans uh, didn't have. And that set me on my way growing up in a middle, middle class kind of family, for example. Um, so and I, I think too about uh, like baseball, <laughs> it's a long season, many at-bats. But if you're slightly advantaged as a batter uh, in terms of every pitch that comes to you, like the pitcher has to throw, I don't know, from five feet back for you, 
It's a little benefit, maybe, but the gradual accumulation of those unfair advantages uh, will serve you well over time. So if you do end up in the Hall of Fame, you got there through your own efforts to some extent, but also through the accumulation of these other advantages that were established through disadvantaging others in a large-scale and competitive marketplace. And I think, so I, for me, it's been haunting and, and important to take a hard look at the ways that I've been advantaged, not because I was a asshole, but because I just got those advantages. Uh, it's not my fault that I got them, but to me, it is my responsibility to see them and to try to rectify things as best I can in all kinds of ways. So maybe that's just part one. If you want to respond to that, then I'll just do part two really kind of quickly here. Uh, as a therapist, there are certain terms that you'll be familiar with, I'm sure, that I just want to throughout as well, related to this territory. One is the ways in which we routinely appraise others, so we have appraisals, and second, we have attributions of qualities and especially intentions. Did they do it on purpose? Did they, was it an accident or are they really a bad person? Appraisals and attributions, right? And then the other thing I'll just add to that is this phenomenon uh, that Jean Piaget talked about a long time ago about two forms of learning, one being we assimilate new information into existing frameworks, the other being accommodation in which we actually budge our frameworks. And you're speaking of lots of ways that we tend to efficiently assimilate information into these pre-existing frameworks of, of appraisals and attributions about other people. Uh, and the hard work and cognitively demanding is to accommodate is to budge your frameworks and actually genuinely learn a different a different way of looking at, at other people. Okay, what do you make of all that? That's all great. And I'll, I'll take them in reverse order and you might have to remind me what the first one was. <laughs> With regard to accommodation, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that, again, assimilation is sort of the easy path and therefore it's the most likely path. Right. And if we had to be constantly accommodating... And this applies to our belief systems broadly, but it also applies to our specific beliefs like stereotypes, like that women are nurturing and men are aggressive. If we had to be constantly accommodating those, we would be very confused. <laughs> and so we generally try to assimilate information to our, our specific beliefs and to our core beliefs or our, our broad ideologies. And, and that, that I agree, it takes, it takes concerted effort to try to override that. And I think we're living in a time where we're just not seeing people doing, in fact, they, they seem to be embracing their core beliefs uh, in defiance of any challenge. So that's, that's a problem at the societal level and it's a problem at the individual level. And, and there, there, there is psychological research on this that when, when people are presented with somebody who violates a stereotype, they will create a subtype uh, which is just a special little category for that person that enables them to preserve the rest of the category um, and keep their stereotype intact. On the attribution and appraisal topic, there's a concept in social psychology called the fundamental attribution error, which is the tendency to attribute people's behaviors to uh, their disposition instead of the situation, when in fact, one of the fundamental insights of social psychology is that most of what we do is driven by you know, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking if we weren't doing this right now. Like mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. driving my behavior. The situation is driving my behavior. So there's there's that aspect. But then we also have a tendency to make more favorable attributions, as I mentioned before, to 
ourselves and to our in-group members than to others and out-group members. And so there's an attribution bias as well. And, and we make these appraisals of what others are thinking and wanting and going to do based on our prior conceptions about what people like that are like. Uh, and of course, those are always going to be more favorable to our in-group members. So that's fundamentally important for, for this understanding. And there's another concept I want to introduce, which is something I, I call disambiguation, um, mm. which is the idea that when we are interacting with another person, we don't have direct insight into their thoughts. All we have is what's on the surface. And in fact, social psychologists have found we don't really even know what our own thoughts are that well, let alone what somebody else's thoughts are. And so we, all we can do is make appraisals and inferences. And if somebody is, you know, if we know somebody very well and we know them to be true to their word, that's one thing. But if we're encountering somebody somewhat novel, um, or if we just, for whatever reason, there's a lot of ambiguity, we have to make a guess about what they're really thinking and what their, where their real intention is. In policing, this gets very fraught. Obviously, when police are looking for who's suspicious of criminal activity and who's not, um, there's that. But even in our daily interactions, uh, we do that. And so the, what happens is you know, we're presented with this ambiguous stimulus, this person who's maybe saying some stuff, maybe angling and maybe looking in a certain way and giving some nonverbal cues. And we have to disambiguate that with whatever information we have available to us. The less information we have available to us and the more ambiguous the stimulus, the person or the, or the situation, the more likely our mental shortcuts are going to have a large influence on the attribution that we make. And so these, these concepts are all vitally important for how we interact with people in general and how we interact with people as a function of the, the racial or ethnic or gender groups that they belong to. And, and one thing to bear in mind that in spite of the fact that there are scores and scores of identified, empirically demonstrated errors that people are prone to, like hindsight bias and confirmation bias and like, if you, if you look, you'll notice that people get through their lives for the most part. And we all seem to survive our environment. Obviously, we don't all, but we, we get through it pretty well. So it looks like, you know, in spite of these deficiencies, we are actually pretty effective cognitive machines and and we do that and one thing that i always try to bear in mind is that well of course you know we have we live in the environment that we have evolved to and so of course we're gonna feel like we're doing just fine in that environment and what we need to bear in mind are a couple things one is that we're not all doing so well Mm -hmm. it feels to us like it's going well but there are some people who are acting in perfectly reasonable and natural ways and things are not going well for them and part of that is a function of race and ethnicity and class and the like but the other thing to bear in mind is that you know again taking the risk of speaking in terms of evolution and evolutionary psychology we stopped evolving a long time before the world resembled anything like it resembles, like it, like it is mm-hmm. now. Our, our technology has created a social environment that is way out of whack with what human beings evolved to cope with. And I'm worried that we're seeing the consequences of that right now with just mm-hmm. the complete separation of realities in America, at least, and that there are just different set of facts for this group and a different set of facts for that group. And people are able to, to reside in that at the same time. And just to underline the point, Jack, 
that you know, which is they're not facts. They're delusions. They're deliberate beliefs and things that are not true, that are very carefully protected, embedded in large-scale media empires. So it's not like they're two separately equivalent collections of facts. I just want to underscore this, and you know this, but I just want to make that point really clear. It's a fact-free mind frame. But, you know, perhaps to, to your point here, Jack, uh, the individual experiences that people are going through in the country can be wildly different based on their own experience. And I think that that's part of what you're you're speaking to here, that my experience as a white man living in the Northern Bay Area in an affluent condition from an educated background and so on is radically different from the experience of somebody who has not grown up in such a privileged environment. And my perception of the world, if I didn't go out of my way to kind of expand it and become more aware about some of the things that people are going to, would naturally be heavily slanted towards that experience that I'm having. And that, I think, clearly contributes to the challenges in talking about these things, because people are coming from such radically different backgrounds of lived felt experience. And that's in addition to all the informational stuff that dad's talking about in terms of the way in which facts get distorted and the different mouthpieces for different quote unquote sets of facts. Of course, all of these facts are not equivalent, all of that good stuff. And it just creates an environment where it's very, very challenging for us to relate to each other. Yeah. And I think just to kind of pull that all together, as long as the people with power feel like humans are doing just fine, status quo is going to be maintained and the people who are not doing so fine are going to continue to suffer. And, um, and so, uh, there's that. And then when we combine with that, the bizarre nature of reality right now and how people experience reality and how it is at the whim of the information sources we have, which can become siloed. Yeah. There's some motivated behavior in there too. We're choosing our silos on a daily basis as well. And sometimes our silos feed our racial resentment or our or our whatever indig- indignation um, and so you know there's it's a complex web of things but we are in a toxic situation with the potential for alternate re- realities being sustainable simultaneously and feeding very different perceptions and goals and motives and ideologies at a time mm-hmm. when we still have these vast inequities so it's a troubling time. And, and my impulse was to say, look, we're doing okay. Like we, we get through our days just fine. And then I realized the white privilege that I was imposing on that. Hmm. So it is something that I felt like was important when we're talking about cognitive biases and the power that we have over them and then the power that we don't and how we need institutional change. And we're, we're probably going to need all kinds of regulatory change to keep moving forward. Yeah, no, I think it's a powerful reflection, Jack, for sure. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. 
And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. There's so many different things here, right? And we're talking about disambiguation, where you're referring to a lot of incomplete information that people might have about somebody else. Then you mentioned a second ago how being in a certain kind of circumstance or situation can drive people's behavior more than their underlying, I don't know, desires, morality, however you want to kind of refer to it. Situations tend to lead to other situations, so you can start to get a little deterministic about this whole thing. Then we get into the ways that the brain has all of these various cognitive biases or our desire to categorize people into different kinds of groups and judge them based on that categorization. Wow, I think that somebody could rightly be listening to this and kind of going, well, crap, are we all screwed here to a certain extent? And is there anything we can do about this? And kind of connected to that, you mentioned Daniel Kahneman a second ago. He's the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. He's done really fundamental work on bias and cognitive bias and judgment-based biases in particular. So that was his focus more than uh, intergroup bias or in-group bias. But he's been very on the record as saying some version of even though he's aware of all of these different cognitive biases he has, and he's like a leading scholar in the territory, he's still kind of a prisoner to his nature. He, he hasn't really gotten that much better at avoiding these darn things, maybe kind of catching them after the fact, but the, avoiding the process of them is extremely challenging. So to ask you, what do you think about all of this? Do you think it's possible for people to become more aware of their biases and maybe more importantly, less biased over time? That's a great question. And I, that, that last point is a really important distinction. Yeah. Awareness of your bias is not the same thing as less biased. 
and especially with respect to implicit bias, which is very hard to change. And there's plenty of empirical work now of very robust attempts to reduce implicit bias, particularly anti-Black implicit bias. The effects are small and fleeting. Mm. Biases seem to be quite resilient. Oh, the good news, by the way, work by um, Banaji and Charlesworth, Charlesworth and Banaji, I should say, shows that, that we now have enough data to look at the time course of implicit biases and implicit biases are declining, um, generally speaking, mm. over time. And, and, and that's also a very robust study. But in any event, because it's so hard to change them and it's kind of more of a generational prospect than it is an individual level prospect, we need to focus on the things that we can do to prevent them from influencing us. And there are lots of promising things we can do. They tend to be fairly labor intensive and they tend to be, in my view, hard to automatize themselves. I, I for a while, was studying something called implicit motivation to control prejudice. You know, the general idea is maybe we can automatize our efforts to control our implicit biases. Uh, And there's some evidence that some people can do it. But more promising, I think, are procedures that we can put in place uh, and maybe reminders. And this might have to be an app-driven thing, Uh, but we may need reminders telling us what caused you to think that or, you know, what, what were you thinking when you made that inference about that individual? But more generally, you know, you can have things like, removing identifying information uh, for, for personnel managers and the like when they're doing hiring and the like things that can prevent the implicit bias from from causing the discriminatory effect. Again, though, the, the thing I've landed on with this is that what you need for that to work is you need motivation, opportunity and strategy. And all mm-hmm. three of those things are difficult to achieve at any given time, especially in the crazy fast paced world that we live in. So, so you're right. That's, that's what we have to focus on, interrupting the bias or preventing it from landing in the first place. But reducing the bias is a much harder thing to do. If I could just jump in, though. So I'm making a distinction here. If I get it right, you're making the point that because we're hardwired to be prejudiced, right? And then second, that hardwired vulnerability is massively exploited by powerful forces, including different groups and elites who use it, uh, include like authoritarian demagogues, to grow and hold on to power. And in institutional settings of all kinds, policing, uh, workplace environments, school environments, things like that, to deal with these very powerful forces, you're saying that it's really important at a policy level to implement and institutionalize defense in depth. Now I'm going into a football metaphor, but anyway, you know, layers of procedures and practices such as not posting mugshots or not having racially identifying or gender identifying information in job applications. Okay, great, 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 great. Okay, good. Alongside that, at the individual level, which is my drum to beat here as a longtime clinical psychologist, within ourselves, as we grapple with our own problematic biases. There are biases that are actually really helpful, but these are problematic biases, especially the ones that are embedded in a structure of mistreatment and oppression that's historical, okay? They are inside ourselves, we have them, and they're automatic by definition. Within a second or two, people can become aware if they want to be aware of a bias. As you know, the most of the implicit association test that's within a time scale of a second or so, you know, very rapid stuff. But within a few seconds, your prefrontal capabilities potentially 
you know, self-awareness capabilities can come online and you're, you're aware, oh, here I am, <laughs> you know, being prejudiced. Whoa. Now what do I do? How can I gradually, how can people gradually, uh, who have a, a good heart for this, who have good intention for this fundamentally, work to regulate bias that's arising inside themselves? For me, the key question is, is it regulated? You know, after the first few seconds tick by, or you realize what you've done, um, or where you're coming from, is it regulated? And second, what can they do over time? Slowly but surely, maybe not for that first third of a second where they're making that hesitation before they, you know, push a button on the implicit association test, but in general, to actually uproot prejudice within themselves gradually over time. What can people do in that regard? I'm glad you turned the discussion in that direction because that I think that that is is feasible. I think it's something that would take a lot of effort and, and strong motivation. But I do think that there are certain practices that will um, contribute to the reduced effect of implicit biases. Now, I, I do want to clarify that the way that implicit bias really operates is that you don't you don't feel it. That's the whole nature of it. You do not subjectively experience the bias. Uh, you may you may realize that you are seeing this person as belonging to that category, and you may make an inference that their category membership is has caused you to misperceive their behavior or perceive their behavior in a particular direction. But you you will not be able to feel that influence as it's happening. So you have to make that inference, and it's a, bit, a little bit of a leap of faith, but it's very scientifically supported. But I, so I'm I'm myself quite engaged, as many people are, gradually in doing this work inside themselves. And I, like many others, are finding it very fruitful. And there's actually a shift that's occurring, a real shift that's occurring over time. So it's hopeful, it's possible. So two examples. First, when you named your professor that you studied under from Yale, my initial assumption I could observe in my mind was that this was a man. And then you said a woman. And I you know, winced internally. I recognize that. I recognize where that comes from. If, if you had described someone as a nurse and then named them as a male, I might have had a different flip, but either way, okay. And I'm trying to help myself not do that. But minimally, I caught it within a second or two. And so I'm gradually kind of counter-conditioning myself, you know, about that. But minimally, I'm catching it. You know, and I don't think it's that hard to catch if, if you want to catch it. Okay, what do you what do you make of all that? No, I think that's all entirely accurate. And the distinction I'm making is only that you're catching it after it's been activated. Correct. But you cannot feel that it's happening in 10 milliseconds. You're absolutely correct. Black crime <laughs> or professor man is happening yep. in, in milliseconds. You cannot subjectively perceive it, but you're, you're onto it and you're, and you are picking up on it and you're overriding it. And that's great. And that's the, I think that's about the best that we can hope to do, but it is going to take vigilance mm. and motivation and opportunity, meaning you can't be cognitively depleted when you're going to be doing that. You need to have all of your cognitive resources available to you. But if you're drunk or tired or distracted or scared, uh, these are all the conditions under which those implicit biases are going to be much harder to override, assuming you have the motivation to do it in the first place. So that's, that's really critical. In any event, that's a very powerful bias and, and it gets reinforced mm -hmm. every time you go back into your environment. 
So to the extent that the environment is changing, that's, that's going to attenuate that uh, implicit association. But in the meantime, it's going to keep getting activated. And so you, you need to figure out over. Here's my example. And here's my confession. When I, I'm a runner, uh, I think at this age, I'm going to call myself a jogger. I always used to. <laughs> and, um, and when I'm out jogging, I cannot help but have an antagonistic reaction to people who are blocking my path. And I'm constantly trying to override that. I'm constantly recognizing that and saying, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not even, they're walking in the, in the same direction. They can't see me. And nevertheless, I have this reaction like, why are you in my way? And that's my automatic reaction. I'm not proud of it. I try every day for years to override that. And I have gotten, I've gotten very little, made very little progress in terms of automatizing that reaction. It's still quite a conscious override on my part. And so I, I think a lot of this is sort of similar to that. And the real threat with implicit bias is the fact that it's not subjectively experienceable and you have to make an inference that it's happening. And good people of goodwill can make that inference and do what they have to do to override it. And you're exactly right. Time matters. And the original studies would distinguish between tasks that had a 250 millisecond stimulus asynchrony and the ones that had a one second. So that's all you need is a second from the initial stimulus to be able to recognize its potential to bias you and to override that. But short of that, or if you are cognitively compromised one way or another, that's very hard to do. You're screwed for the first quarter of a second or second, but then once it bubbles up into awareness and there's an observing process that has a, a moral or an intentional dimension to it, ba-boom. And then you can go from there. Okay, good. That's clear. That's good. That's hopeful. I do want to that's highlight hopeful. something that's really fundamental. So kind of the conversation you guys are having here where, Jack, you're, you're referring to the initial process of kind of the bias kicking in. And then, Rick, you're referring to the ability to uh, regulate execute it. some level of top-down control, regulate it, whatever it might be, after you recognize that a bias has occurred. Great. Good and important distinction. To me, like one of the things that's so fundamental to the story you guys are telling here with that difference is the idea that this is a continuous and ongoing process, that you don't solve your implicit bias. You don't get to a point where you just like don't have implicit right. bias anymore. That's not a thing. That's poignant for us. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that that's a really big part of the story that, I mean, speaking personally to my own demographic a little bit here, that there's, I, I think that there's sometimes a little bit of a desire, particularly among what I'll refer to as like woke white people, to have the idea that they've conquered their implicit bias on some level and that they are quote unquote, no longer racist. And anyone who's tread in this territory as, I mean, you Jack knows for any period of time, they're like, that's just not the way it works. That's not a thing. That's not the way that your brain functions. And it's a poignant recognition of the limitations of our ability to execute that top-down control, particularly in situations, Jack, that you were referring to a second ago where your judgment is compromised. Or as you said, I think not coincidentally at the end there, situations where somebody is afraid. A high-pressure environment, an environment where somebody is under extreme stress, an environment where somebody believes their life is at risk, these biases are going to kick in and really control people's behavior in a way where, I mean, there are reports of people saying things like, I just kind of blacked out and stuff just kind of happened. And I, I, I don't know what happened, but stuff just happened. And that's not forgiving some of the things that happened in the intervening 10 seconds of that person kind of blacking out because you can change somebody's life or end somebody's life in 10 seconds. 
but it does just give us a level of respect for the power of these processes and the ways in which this is an ongoing process. And as you said that, it, it made me think about an important parallel between these individual level spontaneous biases and what Rick brought up before the structural, organizational, societal level biases, because on both levels, they may be operating sort of in parallel and mutually reinforcing each other. But on both levels, there has to be an affirmative, effortful action in order mm-hmm. to override mm-hmm. the bias. Yeah. It's not enough to be benign. Benign neglect is not enough. Benign <laughs> neglect is not enough. Even, yeah, I think that's that's, that's well put as I could as I could put it. And then, you know, I will reflect if, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, please. One of the implications for use of force, and, and really to bring it back to the moment that we're in in our society, uh, one of the implications for use of force is uh, that th- there are actually some good policies and good practices in policing to avoid just these kinds of problems. And the main one is for officers coming into a fraught situation to seek time, distance, and cover. Um, and to the extent that they can slow things down, and good departments know this, if they can slow things down, the likelihood that a bad outcome is going to occur is is increased dramatically. So if you think about that Stefan Clark situation in Sacramento, where the police came barreling around a corner, it was nighttime, he was in his own backyard, he's holding a cell phone, they mistake it for a gun and they shoot him. Had they just remained behind the corner and talked to him, he would be alive today. And the Sacramento PD would be in a lot better shape too. Now, ironically, George Floyd, that's different. That's a nine-minute mm-hmm. execution. Sorry to bring on such a dark and heavy thing, but that's another category of problem. But I do think that, generally speaking, when we see unarmed Black people being fatally shot by the police, at least part of it exp- is explained by that fear that you referenced for us. Um, and fear is one of the things that will really undermine higher-order processing. And, and the way I think about it is, is actually that, you know, there are competing um, influences uh, on your decision making. And some of those influences are automatic and implicit, and some of them are conscious and deliberate. And if you compromise the cognitive processing, the share of the outcome that's going to be made up by the automatic implicit ones, which need virtually no resources, they happen irrespective of how distracted or scared or tired you are. Uh, those are going to take up a bigger share of the outcome. So we need to give people the time and the resources to override with their with their conscious and and have their better better angels prevail. So this is such a poignant conversation, I think, on so many levels for me personally, and probably for many people listening as well. And the truth is that just thinking demographically, most of the people listening to this are probably not working as a police officer or working related even tangentially to law and order services of various kinds. But many of the people listening, just being frank about it, are going to call 911 at some point in their life. And so many of the incidents that we've heard about where there was a negative outcome involving a police officer began with a civilian call of some kind to the police trying to get help, trying to get an intervention. And I would imagine that There are layers of bias that can influence those calls as well. And that, to me, again, brings it back to like the idea of personal practice. What can we do to intervene when we're in that moment of of high stress or high threat in order to try to make the outcome as appropriate to really, I think, use the right word as, as it should be for whatever the truth of the situation is? So I'm sure you've done some thinking on this, Jack, and I would just love to get your take on it. Yeah. 
I'll add to that that you know, one of the things I'm recommending to police departments that I, that is happening in many of them already is is to reduce the kind of proactive policing and these discretionary pretextual stops where they're looking for crime. Stop and frisk. And Stop and frisk, exactly, which is dramatically reduced in New York City and, and in Oakland and in other places. And what that means is that a bigger share of the activities that police and a bigger cause of police contact with civilians is going to be driven by these calls for service, these 911 calls. And police are very concerned about this because they have to respond to these calls. And if somebody calls in and makes a frivolous call or a call that's on the margin about a suspicious person or they feel threatened or, you know, Amy Cooper in the Bramble in Central Park, that is going to cause police or put police in these difficult situations where even if they are acting in an unbiased manner, the predicate is already biased. So we all have a responsibility, but not just for calling 911, you know, because most of us will maybe only do that once in our life or maybe twice. And I mean, if once, once if you're lucky. (laughs) But, but, for, but uh, you know, we have daily interactions with people. We choose to cross the street when somebody looks menacing to us. We, we don't make eye contact with someone. We, you know, you can really, these little, small, cumulative, um, subtle effects can, can build up to undermine the quality of somebody else's life. And, and they, they accumulate quickly. And then, and then there are those of us with positions of power who search to sit on hiring committees um, or, you know, making decisions about, Who's going to get what? It doesn't have to be a life or death decision, but it could be something with small or big consequences for somebody else. We're all vulnerable to that. The good news relative to policing is that because it's not life or death, for the most part, we have the luxury of being able to slow things down. I mean, police should be slowing things down too, whenever possible, and and some departments are, but the rest of us can slow things down. We We can make checklists. We can make sure we're treating each of the applicants with equal criteria. Um, And we can look to see whether we think there's a likelihood that a judgment that we've made sort of lines up conspicuously with a stereotype about the group that the person belongs to. And we can make some effort to override these things. I also think there are some things we can do to change our way of thinking more generally. And I mean, I told my story about my efforts to override my bias against against pedestrians while jogging. <laughs> but I think that, you know, if I were a more disciplined person, I would probably engage in a, in a, in a daily mindfulness practice um, that would help me to build the muscles to be able to do that more automatically and to recognize the bias more quickly. And I think a really important element of mindfulness-based meditation is, is to the extent that it promotes loving kindness and compassion and empathy. And if you, and this would apply to police officers too, but if you can see another person with compassion and see them as a whole person, and you're so much more likely to not see them as just a a superficial representation of the group that you think that they belong to and the characteristics they're in. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think there's great, great potential there. Um, But as with all good things, it's it's gonna take some time and effort. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. I, I think that in terms of the, the area of personal practice with prejudice, the idea of checking yourself when you go into situations to make sure you're not tilting in some unregulated way, uh, in a way that's prejudiced, because you know that you tend to be, you have those habits, or maybe you belong to a privileged group, as I do, white, male, heterosexual, 
who, and therefore when I'm around other sorts of people, I could deliberately have a certain skepticism of my natural reactions to things, a certain internal skepticism to my appraisals and attributions to make sure that I'm not, you know, manifesting jerkness. <laughs> I try to work on that when I can. Another thing you're saying is just the general training and self-awareness, you know, being more aware of the granular little bubbles popping up in the background field of your consciousness and foregrounding them so you become more aware of what those little murmuring uh, voices are telling you or the way they're tilting you in one way or another. Another is to deliberately lean into warm-heartedness. I mean, if you blessed every one of those sidewalk pedestrians as you jogged past them, you know, gradually you might develop a different kind of habit in your heart, you know, over time. I think there's some, maybe some hope in that regard. <laughs> Another thing I'll just say that's been important for me in my own background is to have the moral intention and the distress tolerance. In other words, being able to manage the sense of discomfort internally uh, that then uh, enables one to have more contact with those who are not like me. And through that extended contact uh, in ways that are normal and positive and, and comfortable, uh, then gradually a certain awkwardness and discomfort starts falling away uh, along with uh, prejudice of different kinds. So that too is a psychological practice to kind of help oneself be more able to do things that are a little scary maybe, or maybe even vulnerable to acknowledge bias and be apologetic about it and to work through the process of repair around it, if it's actually the case, um, is also a form of practice that we can engage in that's, that's important and meaningful. And another is to uh, motivate oneself to be an appropriate ally when one can, or deliberately uh, center other kinds of voices and kind of, as appropriate, step back and make more room for them. Uh, you know, that, that too is something that's important. If someone, let's say in a business meeting is a, a woman, uh, our daughter Laurel has definitely uh, highlighted this as an issue. If someone's in a, uh, is a woman in a business meeting who's constantly being interrupted by men or her good ideas are just being ignored until a guy says the same idea five minutes later and everybody starts clapping, you know, we can be allies in all kinds of ways. And, to, and we can... Uh, work within our own minds uh, to to step into that in appropriate ways. So I just want to kind of list through a number of hopeful things people can do in their own practice. I completely agree. I will say that I do I do try to have a compassionate feeling toward running past. <laughs> there was another thing that that reminded me of that I've been trying to do. Oh yeah, so along the lines of what you said, you know, this is a, another confession. I am capable of being irritated with people if they're speaking a different language. Mm. I think it's just because I can't understand what they're saying. But when I'm in my better place, I will revel in the beauty of hearing multiple languages. Mm. And I think mm. about how many people would benefit from that mindset shift. Mm. If I've got that space to think compassionately and to, and to, to revel in the beauty of the world, then, 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 it's, then it's a complete positive. So I'm, I'm revealing what a petty, bitter little man I am. <laughs> <laughs> As, I mean, I think that, I don't know, for me, it just really touches on something that I've thought about a number of times during this conversation and outside of this conversation frequently recently as well, that, that it's hard to control the contents of our mind. It's really hard. 
It's really hard to control the contents of your mind. We think crazy stuff. The brain comes up with some really crazy shit sometimes. Just bottom line. And sometimes it is horrible and racist and sexist, and you just look at it and you go, where the heck did that come from? And that's reality. That is the truth of being human. And I don't think that anyone is immune to that. But we can start to try to control our actions out in the world. And that's a really, really important distinction, this idea of like, okay, stuff's going to arise in the mind, then it's about what do you do next. And I think that it's really great that that's where we've been able to kind of turn the conversation to in some ways, the inevitability of the ways in which the brain is going to be a problem child from us for time to time, and then the things that we can maybe try to do out in the world or in our own behavior in order to intervene effectively to try to be good, moral, upstanding citizens of the world to the extent to which we can. Um, so I actually think it's kind of a wonderful encapsulation of so many of the things that we've talked about today. But Jack, I think we got to let you go at some point here, man. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been such like a wonderful conversation. Thank you. This was great fun. Thank you, Jack, really. And uh, if people want to learn more about you or your work and mm, this whole mm -hmm. territory, uh, we'll have uh, show notes and, and ways for people to access that. And obviously, they can just simply Google your name and they'll see your body of work and what you're involved with. I dominate the Google space for Jack Lasers. That's it. That's very good. <laughs> So today we had truly the absolute pleasure of having a very, at least for me, deep and informative and thoughtful conversation with Jack Glazer from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Jack focuses his work on the study of intergroup biases, and that was the subject of our conversation today. We began with Jack sharing a story of his own development and his history of interest in this work that transformed very quickly into really a kind of masterclass on the study of bias and the various ways that bias can influence our thinking and kind of get into us, as well as giving a, a brief, really, history of the field of bias, which he's been involved in for about 30 years now. If you listen to this podcast particularly frequently, you're probably familiar with the idea that people have biases, and Jack did a great job of illustrating some of the different cognitive biases that people have. One of the things that he referred to early on was a coherence bias, which he kind of just made up in the spot, but I actually think that it's a great example of a form of bias where we try to make a story, a coherent story, out of things that are often not so coherent. Then there are a variety of cognitive biases, but what Jack really focuses on is intergroup bias. How do we attribute certain characteristics across broad swaths of people who are not like us, broadly speaking? And how do we privilege the group that we belong to over those other groups. One of the major themes of the conversation that I kept on coming back to myself was Jack's firm statement that is thoroughly validated in the research literature that you really can't stop being biased. You cannot prevent the brain from going through a process by which it layers bias onto the judgment or the understanding of an individual. It is impossible for us to do that. But what we can do is after that has happened, we can pause, we can reflect, we can take a moment to use some top-down control to hopefully modify our behavior in an appropriate way. So we can't control the contents of our mind, but we can control what we do about it most of the time. And that to me is such a poignant reflection really on the importance of personal responsibility here and the ways in which this is truly a lifelong process of work to understand the ways in which we are biased and we are not seeing the world around us clearly, 
and really doing our best in what I view as a really moral and upstanding process of trying to see the world as clearly as we can and behave as appropriately as we can based not on our biases, but based on that clear seeing, if possible. One of the major focuses of the conversation was on policing, which Jack has been intimately deeply involved in the study of for some time now. Policing is an example of an environment in which the potential consequences of bias are extreme, and we have seen many, many, many examples of those consequences over just the last year. One of the key recommendations that Jack gave, not just people who are actually police officers or participating inside of law and order systems, but anyone who's going to interact with the law or, hey, sit on a hiring committee or be a professor in a class or really broadly interact in a situation where you have a position of power and authority over other people, in all of those environments, slowing down is really beneficial. Our processes of bias are very, very fast in the brain. And as we said throughout the conversation, you can't really stop those processes from firing. You are, in some ways, a prisoner to them. So the key tactic here is to increase the space as much as possible between the firing of that bias and our response to the thought that flows through the mind. The more time that we can put between the firing of that bias and how it affects our behavior out in the world, the safer we're likely to be. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jack as much as I did. He is a remarkable guy. Again, his book is Suspect Race, Causes and Consequences of Racial Profiling, and I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast if you're interested in checking it out. If you've been enjoying the podcast, quick reminder, we have a Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. I create detailed show notes for each episode. I'm sure that the notes for this episode are going to be pretty long. And Rick and I record regular Q&A podcasts where we answer questions from our patrons. If you don't want to join us on Patreon, but you still want to support the show, that's totally fine. Subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and if you could, leave a positive rating and review. It really helps other people find us, and we truly appreciate it. So we'll talk to you again soon. Until then, thanks for listening.